0: reaction to When Cyril first asked me to preach on 1 Peter 2, I said no. Well, first I thought to myself, I knew I never should have gone to that leadership incubator in February, (laughs) and then I said no. But that night I was lying in bed, glasses off, and I couldn't fall asleep, and I thought to myself, you know, I should probably at least read the passage first so I understand exactly what it is I've rejected. And so, by the light of my phone, trying not to wake Diana, I took out my Bible and I read this. Rid yourself of all malice and all guile, insecurity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it, you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as soon as I read this, I had three reactions. My first is that my reaction to Cyril's invitation went from a no to a heck no. Because rid yourself of all malice, guile, and envy, that is a tough passage. I could spend the entire sermon on these three verses and still not even scratch the surface and there are still 23 more verses to cover. My second reaction to this was suspicion. I thought, okay, now I know how Cyril decides which weeks someone else is going to preach. Because I figured he didn't want to touch these verses either. And then I wondered, wait, 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 just how many people did he ask before he got around to asking me? And my third reaction, was the realization that I'd said no to the invitation because I was nervous. Now, lecturing isn't new to me. Every day, I lecture on history, I lecture on mythology, I lecture on philosophy, and at school, I get 75 minutes instead of the 55s you told me to preach this morning. 35? Thirty-five. Thirty-five? <laughs> all right. Good news, everyone. <laughs> this week in your covenant communities, you're going to get to talk about slavery. <laughs> because we are not going to make it. All right, so I, I've lectured before, but this is different. The audience is different. Your peers, you're not students. And the content is different. It seems like the stakes are higher. At school, if I mix up the Roman emperors or attribute the actions to one instead of another, no one is going to know or care. (laughs) But this is scripture. And there are verses about teachers and millstones that weigh heavy on me. In short, my insecurity was preventing me from saying yes. And then I saw the passage again. If the Lord is good, rid yourselves of all insecurity." So I said, yes. Now, the next time I read this passage, I did it. Sun was out, glasses were on, and I came to the realization that some of you may have had already if you were following along in your own Bibles instead of trusting what's up on the screen, because Peter says nothing about insecurity. Peter says, rid yourself of insincerity. (laughs) I'd agreed under false pretenses. (laughs) But at that point, it was too late, because I couldn't exactly write Cyril back and say, hey, Cyril, (laughs) remember yesterday when I promised I would preach about being faithful and sincere? Yeah, I've changed my mind. So, here I am. But I am still not going to talk about these three verses, and this is why. I'm a Latin teacher, which means every day I spend all day thinking about words. It means that whenever Cyril mentions the original Greek and refers to the middle voice or the aorist tense, I'm the one leaning in going, really? Hey, Diana, interesting. And the thing about this passage is that it starts with therefore. Nobody starts a paragraph with therefore. Nobody starts an idea with therefore. Therefore is a conjunctive adverb, which means technically, you know, structurally, thematically, and most important, grammatically. This entire bit is actually part of chapter one. So, Theroux should have dealt with it last week. <laughs> instead, instead, I'm going to start with a bit about the stones. C. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to those who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone." This is not the first time we've heard about this cornerstone business. Hopefully your ears perked up a little bit, because while on the way to Easter, we each wrote a postcard, about the stones that make us stumble. And in fact, that's the point. The meaning of Peter's words here hinges in our understanding what the words meant the first time this was used. And this is a common literary device in the ancient world. To understand the word now, you have to understand the word then. Coincidentally, I was teaching this exact same thing in my mythology class this past week, and we were reading the Odyssey, and what happens in the Odyssey is that Odysseus has been gone for 20 years, and he finally returns home. And when he gets home, he, he's disguised as a beggar. He comes into this shepherd's hut, and as soon as he gets there, the shepherd offers him this simple meal of bread, and he tastes the bread. And as soon as he tastes the bread, he is overcome with emotion, and he breaks down. And the reaction seems like an overreaction, unless you are familiar with all the times previously that Homer has mentioned bread. In order for my students to understand why this is happening now, they have to understand the way that Homer used the word bread then. And, if I would love to tell you that story, then you can talk to me at coffee, but if I don't have time to talk about slaves, which is in the Bible, i got to skip over the stuff that isn't. But the Bible is also full of this first mention idea, I mean, if you think of the Gospel of John, right? it starts off in the beginning. So immediately, we're supposed to think of Genesis, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, John says that God created the earth too, right? They're the exact same, except in the middle, between the fact that there's the beginning and the creation, John says something else. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through Him all things were made. And what's amazing about this is that not only does Genesis impact our reading of John, but John impacts our reading of Genesis, because I can never read Genesis again without thinking that in my mind. And that makes a big difference, because now Genesis 1 makes a lot more sense if Jesus was there. That bit. When God says, let us make man in our image, I always thought he was speaking like the regal sense. right? But after reading John, you realize, wait a minute, he was talking to Jesus in the beginning. Huh. John does a lot of this. Most famously might be this passage. right? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Love is a big theme in the Bible. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, so when is the first time that John mentions love? And if you look it up, you will see that John mentions it apparently about 39 times. But this, in John 3.16, and if you can hit the next slide, is the very first time that it comes up in the Gospel of John. So then we have to ask ourselves, so then when does it come up in Genesis, right? How long would it take the Bible to get around to mentioning love? Chapter one, and he said that it was good. Did he say that he loved the world? What about Genesis six? Like, did God save Noah because he loved Noah? No, it's Genesis 22. John is talking to Abraham and he says, take your son your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice on the mountain I will show you. When I first saw this, it took my mind a few days to recover. And I should have seen it sooner, because every week, I sit under a painting that illustrates this exact same comparison right over there. And if you think about how else John uses the word love, later, when he says that there is no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Of course there is no greater love than that because that is the definition of love that God establishes in the beginning. All right, so Peter's doing the same thing. And we are good at recognizing this in popular culture. Right when the references compound on one another. We're good at seeing this in movies. If you are a Star Trek fan, right, you are familiar with the phrase, the needs of the money outweigh the needs of the few. Or, if you prefer Star Trek, right, I'm not going to discriminate, right, this is the reason you had goosebumps on your neck at the end of Rogue One when Leia says the word hope. So, Peter, is building on Jesus' words when he talks about the stones. So we need to understand what Jesus was talking about, but there's a problem with that, because back when Cyril was preaching on this during Lent, I didn't fully understand what he was saying. When we read it in Matthew, I knew that something was important, because in my Bible, it's indented, as if to call attention to the fact that it's important. But if I'm being completely honest, often, I tend to skim the indented bits. I often treat them like the elvish singing in Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Like, I know it's important, I know. And I am sure I will understand the book a whole lot better if I take the time to read it. But usually, I don't. right? And so when we read this bit in Matthew, I kind of treated the whole thing like an episode of Lost and figured if I just kept listening, it would make sense eventually. Nope. To the point where, when we were in our covenant communities and we were reading this business about cornerstones, it turned into this like, debate about whether our translations said cornerstones or capstones, and what was the difference between a cornerstone and a capstone, to the point that when I should have been writing a reflection about how Jesus can be the cornerstone in my life, instead I was secretly using my phone to find out when the arch was introduced to Israel. So, in the event, that I am not the only person in the room in need of a bit of remediation. (laughs) Let's take a look at what Peter's doing here. On the left, we've got Matthew 21. Have you never read this? Oh, and this is the exact same words that show up in Luke and Mark, so all three identical. Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now, in my defense, back when I was giving the passage, I did take the time to check the footnote to find out what verse was being referenced. It was Psalms. <laughs> Psalms. <laughs> I love the Psalms. But the idea of trying to understand Jesus' metaphor by interpreting the original poetry on which they were based, yeah, I just let it go. But here, on the right, we see Peter. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. So Peter is using the exact same bit, but he adds a bit that Jesus never mentioned back in Matthew. In the same way that John adds to Genesis, Peter adds here when he says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So this is new. It's expanding out what Jesus said. It's indented, which means he's quoting something. And apparently, he's quoting Isaiah. Yay. The only thing I love more than poetry is prophecy. (laughs) All right. So, in Isaiah, God talks about setting up a cornerstone, a testing stone to be the foundation of Israel. And the cornerstone uh, serves a few purposes. If you can go back one slide. All right. so this is the cornerstone of an apartment building in Ostia. And what I like about this cornerstone is that the cornerstone is the first stone that's laid, and it's part of the foundation. And here, you can see that the stone extends below ground level. It extends into the ground. It's what anchors the building to the ground. The second role of this stone is to orient the building. All future stones are going to be placed and take their alignment from it. This stone is also known as the testing stone. So in large-scale buildings, like this one, this is the stone that sets the standard. All future stones are measured against it and tested against it as a template to ensure accurate sizing. Now, the second bit. The bit out the stones the builders rejected becoming the capstone. Capstones are different than cornerstones. Cornerstones are on the ground. Capstones are in the sky. They're placed at the top of the arch, to help balance all the stones that are below it. And what's interesting is that like the cornerstone like, does a lot of work, but the capstone does no work. Right? All the stones underneath it are doing everything. They're taking all of the structural force of the building. Now, without the capstone, they would all fall apart. But the capstone is just there so the others can do what they're supposed to do. So, Peter is using these two verses intentionally because he wants to drive home the point that Jesus is the first stone and that Jesus is the last stone. Jesus is the beginning and Jesus is the end. But he is just two stones. Jesus is not the temple. He is not the church. And this is important because in Matthew, when Jesus was talking about being the cornerstone, I remember thinking, Yes, Jesus! You do that. You rebuild that temple in three days. A new church, new people. I cannot wait to see what you create. And then I will attend every Sunday for an hour and on Wednesdays when it's my turn to carpool the youth. (laughs) But again, according to Peter, Jesus isn't this new temple. He isn't the spiritual house. We are the spiritual house. Sure, he is the cornerstone, But a cornerstone is not the building. We are the building. Here, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And skipping ahead to verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So the cornerstone is the most important stone, but it's nothing if other stones aren't built upon it. We are that building, which means we are supposed to take our orientation from him. We are supposed to be measured against him. Jesus got all this started, but we are to do far more and far greater things than he did, at least That's what he said. Remember, verily I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. All right. So we are to be the church, but to what end? In verse 12, it says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So how do we live such good lives? By submitting. All right, a big chunk here. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, You should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now, as you recall, I am not going to say much about slaves. But I will say this, God is not endorsing slavery in this passage. God has a plan for this world. Slavery is not part of that plan. But in the Roman Empire, slavery was a fact of life. No one had ever even imagined a world without it. And over and over again, we see that when we go against God's plan, he doesn't abandon us, he finds a way to work with us. Right When Israel demanded a king, God didn't want a king, but if you insist on a king, well, this is how the king thing is going to work. Right? He does it with us now. I am pretty sure that money is not the way that God intended for the world to interact with each other. But if we insist that money is how we're going to do things, then God is going to set down some guidelines for giving to the church and to the poor because he's not just going to leave us to our own devices, right? He comes with us in our brokenness. And he is doing the exact same thing here. So there's slaves. If there's going to be slaves, he's going to give instruction. Slaves, submit to your masters. And in Ephesians, we also get instructions for masters in terms of how they're supposed to treat their slaves. But why slaves? Why submit? In short, so that our masters may be free. We're the slaves, but the masters are the ones who aren't free. We, we have freedom in Christ, right? If we submit, they may gain freedom too. The world may gain freedom. Now, this sounds like a bit of a stretch, in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. I mean, can that really happen? Right? They see you doing something and they praise God as the result of it? Yes. It happens every single time. Joseph is the favorite free son until he's sold and accepts life as a slave. And what does Pharaoh say? The spirit of God is in you. Moses Moses didn't sneak away from Israel. I'm sorry, from Egypt with all the Israelites. He asked permission, and in the end, the magicians said, "Surely this is God." And Pharaoh asks Moses to pray for him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to bow. They refuse to obey. But they submit to Nebuchadnezzar's authority to punish them. And Nebuchadnezzar says, surely your God is the God of gods. No other God can save in this way. Daniel continues to pray, but submits to Darius's authority and the advertised consequences. Darius, the God of Daniel, is the living God. And again with Jesus. Peter observes in chapter 2 that he did not retaliate or make threats, And when Pilate declares that he has power and authority over Jesus, Jesus does not disagree. And later, the Roman soldier says, surely this man was the Son of God. I really like this idea, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. I like it because it reminds me of the passage that guided my father's life from Matthew 5. Let your light shine, so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I also like it because it reminds me of the phrase that's been guiding mine. Live the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words, which is dubiously attributed to Saint Francis of Assisi. Live the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. This seems like the perfect instruction for an introvert working in the public school system. (laughs) Live the gospel, avoid words. And when I first started teaching, I spent a long time planning out what it would mean to humble myself and submit in the context of a classroom. But lately, I'm starting to wonder if it's working. I wonder if I'm having the impact that I intended to. Now, occasionally, I'll get a chance to explain it. Occasionally, an opportunity will come up where I am able to give context to everything that I am. Once, I was teaching this philosophy class, and a bunch of students were all in groups discussing a topic of some sort. And from this one group of girls, I heard one of them say, well, I mean, I could date a religious guy, but I would never date a super religious guy. And immediately, I had to step in, because I suspected they weren't on topic. But more importantly, <laughs> this was a philosophy class. And I had taught them to define their terms and to just throw out words like religious and super religious. That was not going to fly in my classroom. And so I went up to them and I said, Well, okay, well like, I, I mean, I heard what you just said, but like, what is a religious guy? Like, What is a super religious guy? What's the difference between them two? And they talked about it for a while. And after five minutes, I kind of stepped in to help them, and I said, okay, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that a religious guy is someone who goes to church, and a super religious guy is someone who actually believes it. And they said, yes, that is exactly it. (gasps) Why? Are you religious? (laughs) And I said, no, do not be ridiculous. I'm not religious. According to your definition, I am super religious. And for the next half-hour, they just wanted to to know. They asked questions about what I believed, and why, and how I understood the world, and it was glorious. Another time, I was leading a March break trip uh, to Greece, and at 3 in the morning, I dragged myself from my room into one of their rooms to find out why they weren't asleep yet. And as I came in, I saw 15 of them sitting in a circle on the floor. They're like, ask Mr. Skinner, he'll tell us. Hey. Mr. Skinner, what is the purpose of life? (laughs) With high school students, it's always at 3 in the morning. And I looked at them and I said, "Okay, if you go to bed now, I will tell you tomorrow. And they all went to bed. And the next day, we were in Corinth, And sitting under this tree, I said, okay, you asked me, I'll tell you. Here's the purpose of life. And they were really curious as to what I was going to say. I said, we all have beliefs that are important to us, people we imagine ourselves to be. The issue with humanity is that we seem to accept that our beliefs don't necessarily translate into action. We're comfortable with the fact that we can like, think one thing and do another. For example, I believe in love. Yet because of arrogance, I don't necessarily back down from arguments with Diana, because in the moment, being right somehow is more important than being righteous. Or, I said to the students, I think that humility is one of the most important characteristics that humanity can have. But the reality is, whenever I'm at my most humble, I kind of fingers crossed hope someone noticed, (laughs) which is pride. (laughs) And so, in short, there are all of these things that I want to do. But the problem is, I don't do them. And there are all these other things that I do not want to do at all but I do them all the time. I liked quoting Paul in Corinth. It felt good. And then I said, the purpose of life is to become what you believe. But Mr. Skinner, what do you believe? I like to imagine that Jesus and Peter were high-fiving themselves in heaven that day. (laughs) Because I don't know if it could have been any better, and I love being a teacher. Think about it. What other job could I have that gives me an opportunity to live out everything I claim is truth to so many people on a daily basis? Grace, compassion, service, love. These are rare virtues in a school where authority is often thrown around. And when I tell these two stories back to back, it makes me seem like I've got all this figured out. But in reality, I've been teaching for 15 years, And I only have four of these stories. Now, I am ready to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that I have. I'm ready. But the reality is, not a lot of people are asking. Now, I'm sure that my students would describe me as generous, and compassionate, merciful, maybe even faithful. But if you ask them, why is he compassionate, they would probably say, oh, because he's a nice guy, or they might say, oh, because he's, you know, a good teacher. But they're not going to say, because he's a Christian. And that's the reason. When my father died last year, I had a number of colleagues comment on the peace that seemed to surround me. But unless they came to the memorial service, they still have no idea where that peace came from. And the reason they don't know is that in my effort to follow verse 11, live such good lives, I tend to forget verse 9, declare the praises of him who called you into the wonderful light. My confession to you this morning, is I am not great at saying the name Jesus unless I know it is safe. A while ago, my entire grade 12 class was discussing yearbook quotations because they were really anxious and the deadline was coming up and they were trying to figure out, like, if they say something on their own, do they find a famous quotation, like, what do they do? And out of nowhere, one of them turned to me and asked, Mr. Skinner, do you remember your yearbook quote? To which I answered that I did, but then I took the opportunity to point out that quote is a verb You quote something. Quotation is the noun. (laughs) He should have asked me, what is my yearbook quotation? (laughs) But in the midst of that grammar lesson, I failed to answer his original question. For the sake of my sister, who promised she's going to listen online, (laughs) the screen has my yearbook up there with my quotation, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but rather set an example for believers in word. There were no high fives in heaven this day. And two weeks ago, A bunch of students were eating their lunch in my classroom, like, just off in the corner, doing their own thing. Uh, And out of nowhere, I heard one of them say, I swear to Jesus. At which time I heard another one say, oh, forget swearing to Jesus, you had better pray to Jesus. And then I heard a third one say, in this mocking tone, (laughs) yeah right, dear Jesus. And two thoughts went through my mind as I sat at my desk, saying nothing. First, I've seen this girl every other day for three years. If she had any idea that I was a Christian, she never would have said what she did. More importantly, if she had heard someone else say it, she probably would have come to my defense and shut it down on my behalf. But she didn't know. The second thing that occurred to me is that in the school board where I work, we are very clear that we do not discriminate based on religion, race, sexuality. And if they had been mocking someone color or nationality, like, I would have shut it down in a second, right? If they if had been disparaging someone's gender identity, I would have stopped it, and they would have understood why. Right? Even if they'd been making fun of Muhammad, I would have intervened. But here we were in my classroom, and my students were mocking Jesus, and I said nothing. And this is a problem, <laughs> because last week Cyril explained that the church is scattered which means that in this post-Christian society, we are the only church, the only living stones that many in this world will ever know. So we have a duty to speak because nature abhors a vacuum. And if we don't shape the Christian identity for our neighbors, for our employers, for our employees, we will allow it to be shaped by someone else. And for every one of us who is does good at the expense of declaring. There is someone else who is more than willing to declare at the expense of doing good. I saw the word Christian twice in the media this week. And the other? Neither made me feel great. But this is the narrative that exists when we're silent. Now, I'm not here to challenge you to change who you are. Uh, That's a bit bold for a supply teacher. (laughs) But I am going to challenge us to admit who we are. So... Your colleagues at work recognize that you don't gossip, right? Do they understand why? Or your friends might recognize that you don't drink anymore. Do they know why? Or the widow who lives next door, and every time it snows, you shovel her driveway. I mean, I'm sure she appreciates that you do it, but does she know why? You do it. That's my challenge to you because I know that my friends, my colleagues, the woman who lives next to me, like they don't know why I do it. But if we can become living stones, they will. Now, as we move into communion, uh, I'm going to finish the last few verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, If you're following along in your Bible, the heading is probably uh, Christ's example. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, He did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Oh, tree. I would have expected him to say the word cross, but he says tree. I wonder if this is the first time the Bible mentions someone hanging from a tree. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls."